When I came on uh, campus today, I was, uh, I was just jazzed. We've been studying heaven, and I said, I'm ready. I'm closer to heaven today than I was when I was born. And so as I came on campus today, uh, the security team met me and said, uh, sir, uh, what do you got there? And I said, this is my bug out bag. Your bug out bag? Where are you going? I said, I'm going to heaven. And they said, well, do you mind if we take a look inside? I mean, anytime, anytime somebody comes with a camouflage bag on campus wearing gothic colors, you better check him out and make sure he's not a terrorist. And so they looked at my bag and they, uh, no, I'm serious, they did this this morning. I feel, I feel much safer, but uh, they looked at my Bible and said, okay. And they said, now, what's this right here? And I said, uh, well, these are my sermon notes. And he said, what? No iPad? I said, no. I said, no, I'm old school. And then he, uh, he looked inside and he said, what are these? I said, they're my pajamas. And what's this? Oh, my toothbrush. I told you, I'm on my way to heaven. Well, I haven't always been ready to go to heaven. I spent the first 18 years of my life probably avoiding that subject. But 350 years ago, not before my time, a group of British, Scottish, Irish pastors got together and created a body of work called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It was a, a teaching discipleship tool for the church. And the first question in that study is this, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. If we were to put that in maybe a little more modern words, we'd say our greatest aim or our greatest purpose in life is to glorify God in all things as we are continually being conformed to the pattern of His Word for a healthy church. How do we do that? How do we enjoy God yesterday, today, and forever? And Jesus always gives us an answer. And in Matthew Chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus said this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. If anyone, any man, any woman, any child, were to come after me, let him daily deny himself, pick up the cross, and follow hard after me. That is our purpose, and that is our calling in life. I want to share my story, because as a young boy, I really thought I knew what God's purpose for my life was. I mean, my friends all had their purpose and aspirations sorted out. My, a friend wanted to be a Phoenix, city of Phoenix fireman. One, one person wanted to be a city of Phoenix policeman. My little brother wanted to be a city of Phoenix garbage truck driver. Go figure, all noble aspirations. But me, I had a higher calling, and that was to be a superhero. 
And out of the comic book figures, I mean, Superman and Spider-Man had nothing on me. And that influence really came about from my parents. For most every night, my parents would uh, seat us on the sofa. They would bookend us. My brother and I would be sandwiched in between them, and they would read the, the great his, heroic stories from the Old Testament. You know, Moses. Moses leading the Egyptians out of Israel. I mean, Moses said, come on, guys, we're walking off the job. We're not going to build these pyramids anymore. And so he led them, and they faced a barrier in their escape, and it was the, the Red Sea. And so Moses took up the rod, and I said, Daddy, Daddy, wait a minute, what's a rod? He said, that's just a big old stick. And so Moses lowered that rod, and the waters parted. And he went to the other, they all went to the other side, and Moses looked back, and here comes Pharaoh and his army, and they're pursuing the Israelites, and he lowers that rod, and the waves came pouring over, drowning Pharaoh and his armies. And I was excited. I jumped up and said, way to go, Moses. Sick them. Kick them when they're down. Kick them when they're down. Kill those expletive. And my dad said, what? Where did you learn that word, son? I said, pointing to my little brother. He's sucking his thumb. He said, well, I'm going to spank you and you're going to bed. Oh, Daddy, Daddy, I'm so sorry. Mama, why don't you just read us one more story, and I promise to behave. And she, she read the story about Joshua. And Joshua went up to the citadel there at Jericho and the enemies of God, and he sent the priests, and they marched around the city for seven times, and the walls came crumbling down, and Joshua and his men went in and slayed all the, the men and women and children except for one family and killed all the cattle. And I said, way to go, Joshua. Sick them. Kick them when they're down. Kick them when they're down. Kick those expletives. And my dad said, that's it. I said, Daddy, I'm sorry. I don't even know what that word means. <laughs> Ask my little brother. He said, okay, just one more story. And he read that great story of David and Goliath. And David, the shepherd boy out in the hillside, and he's got his slingshot. He's tending the sheep, and he's warding off the javelina and the, the coyotes and the bobcats, the lions, the tigers and the bears. And well, they didn't have any tigers in, but they had lions and bears. And you know the story. David whips that stone, hits Goliath right there in the center of the head. He cold, cold cocked falls to the ground. The ground is, is thundering under his weight, and David runs up and cuts off his head. And I said, way to go, David. Sick him. Kick him when they're down. Kick him. My dad said, that's it. And he gave me the worst whipping of my life. And I still have the scars in my bum to prove it, uh, but I'm not going to show you. So I went to bed that night undaunted. I woke up the next morning. It was Saturday. There was no school. I said, come on, little brother. We've got battles to fight. And so we went out and we cut some branches off the Chinese uh, elm tree and went over to the side of the pool and just began thrashing the water with our rods, trying to part those waters. And after we had exhausted ourselves, I said, come on, let's go. Let's run around the house seven times. And we're hooping and hollering and laughing and singing. And the neighbors were coming out wondering what is the ruckus. And we stood there after seven times, waiting our house to crumble down. 
And when that didn't happen, I said, little brother, maybe we went the wrong way. And so we were around seven more times. And then that didn't work. So I went into my dad's uh, workshop and I made a, a very simple sling and with, with twine and some pouch. And my brother and I went out in the backyard. I had him stand about 10 feet away from me. I said, here, put this rusty old tin can on your head and stay still. And I'd just be pelting him with stones. He'd jump around. I said, stand still. I never hit those, that can, but I didn't put his eye out. At the end of the day, I thought, man, being a superhero is tough business. And I think then my parents began to wise up. They said, maybe we shouldn't be teaching our boys these violent stories out of the Old Testament. And so they moved to the, the gentler, kinder, compassionate Jesus stories out of the New Testament. And my mom read the story where Jesus is hiking through the desert and comes into Samaria and it's the heat of the day and there's a woman at the well and he befriends her and he says to her, give me a cup of water. She's an outcast because of her lifestyle. And she says, who are you, sir? And he said, if you knew who I was, you would ask of me of a cup of water and I'd give you streams of living water. My mom said, well, boys, what do you think of that story? Oh, man, that Jesus, he's a cool dude. I want to be a cool dude. And then my dad told the story of Zacchaeus. You know, Jesus is coming into the small village town, and his fame is preceding him, and all the villagers go out to meet him except for this little Zacchaeus. He was so small. He's a tax collector. He's an outcast of society. And so he runs up into the sycamore tree, and Jesus comes under the tree and says, Zacchaeus, I see you up there. Come down, for I'm going to go to your house to stay, and we're going to party. And my dad said, what do you think of that? And I said, man, that Jesus, he's a cool dude. My dad said, don't say that. <laughs> so I went to our room that night, and being the older brother, I got the top bunk. My brother's regulated to the lower bunk, and there in the dark, quiet stillness of the night. I whispered these words, Jesus, will you be my friend? And of course, the answer was yes. And down below, I heard my brother whisper the same words, Jesus, will you be my friend also? Next morning was a school day. I jumped out of bed and I said, come on, Jesus. We got to get dressed and go to school. But I don't think you can wear those robes to school because we have a dress code. And, and that beard of yours, there's nobody at my school has a beard. And so we bolted out the door together. I was carrying my, the lunch pail my mom had made for us. And I said, come on, Jesus. We're going to go to school together. And I'm going to introduce you to all my friends, to Jack, to Phil, to Roger. But I'm not going to introduce you to Carl because that guy's a bully. And I said, and since you're my new best friend now, why don't you get to carry my lunch, you get to carry my lunch pail. And so I handed it out to Jesus and I let go and it dropped to the ground. I said, no, it's okay. I picked it up and said, don't worry about it. Jesus became my best friend. But I did not know the cost, the price that he would have to pay to be my friend. And I didn't understand the price that I too would be called upon to pay 
to follow him as my friend. For no greater love than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And if you follow me, Jesus says, I call you friend. You know, fast forward into high school and, you know, those Bible story times faded away. They gave over to studying and doing homework in high school, algebra, geometry, English lit, history. In fact, I enjoyed algebra so much I took it twice in the same year. <laughs> same class. You've been there. Got heavily involved in student government class president. I said, man, this is my new calling in life. I'm going to become a politician. Thankfully for you and for me, that did not happen. I was involved in track and field, baseball, but the sport that I really enjoyed was wrestling. I mean, wrestling is mano el mano. I mean, sweaty young boys dancing around in leotards, groping one another, trying to rip limb from limb off. Here I am, 17 years of age, and I'm in the Phoenix Union District High School champion, uh, semifinals for the championship. All I got to do is win this one match in front of me. So I make the first aggressive move for a single leg takedown. He reversed me, flipped me on my back. I was looking up at the ceiling of the gymnasium. It was a humiliating defeat. And I crawled off the mat knowing I'd let my school down, my teammates down, I'd let myself down. I busted out of that Camelback High School gymnasium into a cold, dark, rainy January night. I didn't even bother to go to the locker room. I was so mad and so dejected and upset. And I walked off the campus of Camelback High School onto 28th Street and Campbell, that intersection. And I did something I'd never done before because I was dreading this two-mile walk back home. I I began thumbing a ride, you know, hitchhiking. And a moment later, a car pulled over, and I started running to catch my ride. And as I'm running to the car, I heard the words of my father say, Son, I don't want you to ever hitchhike on the road. I said, but why, Dad? He said, remember Roswell, New Mexico? Well, if you don't remember what happened in Roswell, New Mexico, somewhere in the mid-1940s, from outer space, an alien spaceship full of little green men came down to Roswell, New Mexico, abducted some of the citizens, and they were never heard from again. He said, remember Roswell? (laughs) Well, at 17 years of age, I'm standing there thinking, who listens to their parents as a teenager? So I flung open the car door, jumped inside, locked the door, I looked over at the driver, and it was a guy that I knew a little bit. His name was Hayes Wicker. He was a part of the youth group here at North Phoenix. And he said, Steve, buckle up. So I buckled up. He put the pedal to the metal, floored that 440 cubic inch Plymouth Fury, and we were screaming down the road. I looked over the speedometer we were at 65 miles an hour in a 30-mile-an-hour zone. And then he takes his hand off the wheel. He points at me. 
He takes his eyes off the wheel. He looks at me, and his eyes were just flaming red, and out of his mouth came fire. And he said, Stephen, are you saved? (laughs) If you were to die tonight, do you know if you'd go to heaven or hell? (laughs) Whoa, I just began freaking out. I panicked. I was fumbling for that lock, and in those days they didn't have electric car windows, and I'm cranking that car window down. I already had ripped off my seat belt. I'm hanging out the door, and this pavement is rushing by at 65 miles an hour, and I said, I can do this. If I just jump now and curl into a little ball, I'll be saved from this alien abduction. And then we came to a screeching stop there at 28th Street and Indian School at a red light. And I bailed. I said, hey, thanks for the ride. This is where I'm getting off. And the car sped off into the night when the light turned green. And I stood there just shaking like a leaf. I ran all the way home with this fear and trepidation in my heart, all because I did not have the certainty If I were to die that night, whether or not I'd go to heaven. I wrestled with that conversation, and I don't recommend that tactic, but (laughs) I wrestled with it for the rest of my junior year in high school and throughout the summer and entered my senior year, and this friend of mine, good friend Roger Newell, invited me. He said, hey, Steve, uh, we're going to have an off-campus Bible study and this youth director is going to lead it. Would you go with me? And they're going to show a film. And I said, sure. And that night they showed this film called Through Gates of Splendor. And it was about five missionary families who were trying to reach and engage a lost people group, the Aka Indians in the Ecuadorian rainforest. They had studied the language. They had a small plane. They circled the forest, and they found this village, and they eventually landed on the beach beside the river and took in gifts to the villagers, and the villagers welcomed with open arms. And then somewhere over the next few days, something went terribly wrong, and the warriors rose up and speared and macheted to death those five men. And so I'm watching this film, and radio communication hadn't come back from the airplane to the home base, and a search party of Ecuadorian soldiers went out, and in this film, you see the soldiers walking to the beach, and there's three men, spears in their chest, two men out in the water, and that shook me to my core. The youth director that night drove me home, and we stopped outside my house, and he said, Steve, what did you think of that movie? And I said, I don't know. Why did those men give up their life? In fact, Jim Elliott was one of the men, the missionaries, and I've shared this quote with you before, but it's worth repeating. In his diary, he said, he is no fool to give up that which he cannot keep, to gain that which he cannot lose. And I said, I don't understand. And he said, well, Steve, God loved you so much that He gave His only Son who died on the cross for you. And if you'd trust in Him, He'd forgive you your sins and give you the purpose in life that you want. 
And I prayed that simple prayer with him. And something miraculous happened in my life there at age 18. The Bible says I was given new life. I was born anew. And and the Bible word for this is the word regeneration. And regeneration is new birth. It is new life. It is the work of God's grace whereby we become new creatures in Christ. If any person be in Christ, old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. I was given new life that moment. And something else happened that I didn't understand at the time. But simultaneously, I was justified before God. And to be justified, God, is simply God's gracious acquittal of our sins. Justification brings us into a new and right relationship of peace and favor with God. He is the one who acts upon our life and positions us rightly so that we are acceptable in His sight. Now, in my library at home, I like to have all my books standing up like soldiers. And if one falls down, I I go around there and I justify it. I put it in its right position. And that's only something God can do. It's God whose Son did the work for us on the cross, and only God is the one who can write us. We can't write ourselves. This is the initial stage of our spiritual salvation journey. It begins when we are saved from the penalty of sin and death and eternal separation from God, and we are saved into the presence of God. We are accepted in His sight because we are covered by the blood of Jesus. So we are saved from the penalty of death, and we are to be continually saved from the power of sin in this evil generation. And this is what the Bible calls sanctification. And sanctification begins in that new life. It is the presence of the power of God's Holy Spirit working in us daily to transform our minds, to grow us up into maturity, and to conform us to the image of Christ. It's progressive. That night, the uh, youth director said, now, Steve, you need to take some next steps. I said, what are those? He said, well, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and He's the end. He's the first and the last. And the Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter. And he said, on this spiritual journey, you need to grow up, and there's some steps that you need to take. You need to be baptized. You need to be a part of a a group who is studying God's Word. You need to be part of the church. You need to know how to learn how to give and to serve. And, And he said, I want you to start meeting with a group of guys every other morning before school and study this book. It's a study of the book of Matthew called The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I've had this book since I've been 18. That's, that's a long time ago. <laughs> and the thing that stood out to me in this study was 
But Dietrich Bonhoeffer shares that quote about Jesus. If anyone would come after me, let him daily deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. How do we die to ourselves daily? How do we grow into maturity? I love going to Costco for one reason. They have the world's greatest hot dogs in the snack bar. $1.25, you get a smoky all beef hot dog and a drink. And a couple weeks ago I was in there Got a hot dog, just slathered it with mustard, and I'm walking out to the car, just chomping away, and that mustard is running down my beard, down my shirt. And right in the middle of that hot dog, in the middle of the parking lot, I said, I had this brilliant idea. I'm going to save, that's the key word, I'm going to save this hot dog for my beloved Marsha. And so I busted home, and she said, and I said, hey, hey, babe, I'm home, and I've saved you this hot dog from Costco. And she just hugged me and just smothered me with passionate kisses, said, you're the world's most wonderful husband ever. And she said, just put it in the refrigerator and save it for me, and I'll take it with work to work with me tomorrow. So what was I doing besides being a wonderful husband? I had saved that hot dog past tense. I was saving that hot dog in the refrigerator, protecting it from nasty microbes, from bacteria, from spoilage and decay. I was saving that hot dog for her future enjoyment. Went to bed that night, and somewhere in the middle of the night, I had these incredible hunger pains. You know this story is going downhill fast. <laughs> so I went into the kitchen, opened the refrigerator, and there st- staring in front of me is temptation. <laughs> After I'd finished my business, I went to the restroom and washed the mustard out of my beard and brushed my teeth, trying to get rid of all the evidence. <laughs> Next morning, Marcia goes into the kitchen to prepare her lunch and opens the refrigerator door and said, where's my hot dog? I said, what? Where's my hot dog? I said, well, maybe the dog ate it. And she said, we don't have a dog. (laughs) Just scratch me off of uh, the world's greatest husband award. Busted. When God saves you from the penalty of sin, he saves you and keeps saving you unto himself. The Scripture says, Scripture says, when we trust the Lord, we are placed in the palm of His hands. And He encloses His fingers around us and He protects us. He saves us from the present evil generation of our day. And nothing the Scripture says can pluck us out of the hand of God. For He is growing us up in this journey of salvation. And salvation is a continuum. On this linear line, you have a beginning, 
and you're moving along in this great story to an end that transcends. In fact, Tim Keller, and I've left my note in there, he said this, we are future-oriented beings, and our life makes no sense unless we have a set of beliefs that tells us we are in a story that leads to an ending that transcends. Someday, we're going to come to the end of our lives. We're going to come to the end of that spiritual journey. And though we may physically die, this is a never-ending story. And your salvation journey is like a thread that's being woven through history, along with all the other saints who've come before us and will go ahead of us. Your story is just a part of a thread in this great tapestry of salvation history that God is creating. And someday, we're going to cross the finish line, and God's going to stand, and we'll see Him face to face, and He will welcome us home. Paul says this, when he was looking at the end of his life in that prison, and knew death was near, he said, for I have finished the course. I have run the race. And there now waits for me a crown of righteousness, not only to me, but to all who believe. Reminds me of my track and field coach in high school who would line us up in the blocks at the start. He'd go down about 50 meters, stand there and through his megaphone say, ready, set, go. We'd bust out of those blocks just racing with our chests out, and he would shout, finish the race, boys. Finish the race. Run the course. And there is nothing more thrilling to cross that finish line. And there'll be nothing more thrilling when we cross that finish line. And God welcomes us and looks, in our, looks into our eyes and says, well done, good and faithful servant. And what will we do? Gather with all the saints of ages from representatives from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Gathered around the throne of the Lamb, worshiping Him forever, enjoying Him forever. We will take off our crowns, and we will cast our crowns before the throne, in which we say, Behold, the Lamb of God, salvation of the world. Are you ready? Are you set? Are you going? If you're here today and you've never started this spiritual journey and you'd say, I'd like to do that. You know, I'd like to have Jesus as my friend. I'd like him to come into my life and to save me of my sins and forgive me and make me right with God. If that's the desire of your heart. Let me just ask you to bow your head, close your eyes and I want you to pray this out loud. No one's looking around, but if you, if you mean you want business with God and you want Him to come into your life, just simply say this, Dear Lord Jesus, thank You for dying on the cross for me. Jesus, I invite You to come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Help me to become that person You want me to be.
Now, if you say it, said that prayer and meant it, I've robbed come up. If you said that prayer and meant it, welcome to the family of God. Welcome to your nerd journey. And your next step may ought to be baptism. Your next step needs to study the Word of God. Your next step needs to be a part of a church fellowship who will love you where you can learn to, to serve and to give. But God wants to grow you up in Himself. Probably for the, the vast majority of us, we are fellow strugglers in Christ, trying to live for Him, trying to glorify Him, trying to share His name. And maybe you've got a friend who, who doesn't know Jesus. I know I do. I have plenty of friends that way. You've got a colleague who doesn't know Jesus. You've got an extended family member. You've got a classmate. You've got a neighbor next door who doesn't know Jesus. And you just right now pray for them. Just bow your heads and just call out their name. Call out their name and say, God, rescue them. God, save them. God, may your Holy Spirit draw them unto yourself. May they know newness of life. Just call out their name. God, save them. God, rescue them. Call out their name. Call out their name. Call out their name. God, save them. Francis of Assisi prayed this. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying to ourselves daily picking up our cross and following hard after you that we are born and live to eternal life. Amen.